0: And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Awesome. Well, good to see you guys once again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Uh, I'll go ahead and apologize in advance if I sniffle a lot or clear my throat up here. Uh, God bless Tennessee with all of our allergy season, right? I know it's getting a lot of people this year. Somebody told me it's worse than normal in Knoxville this year. And I was like, what does that even mean? It's awful normally. Um, But anyway, I'm going to try not to sniffle too much. But if you guys hear it, that's what it is. It's not COVID. I promise I'm fully vaccinated as of this week. So uh, yeah, so uh, it's not that. I promise I'm not breathing COVID on you. It's just allergies. So just as a heads up. Um, If you are new here, uh, like I said earlier, welcome. We're super glad that you're here, whatever reason you have uh, for joining us uh, this Sunday. Uh, If you are new, just for you to know what we like to do during this portion of the gathering each week uh, is just open up the Bible to a passage or maybe a couple of passages, uh, talk a little bit about what they mean, um, and then talk a little bit about how those passages sort of intersect and apply to our lives today. We like to keep it pretty simple, not a lot of bells and whistles, just kind of Seeing uh, how the scripture might apply to us today, Uh, but right now we're in a series that we are doing straight through the book of Matthew, sort of line by line, passage by passage, story by story, just seeing what we can learn from this particular early biography of the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, Right now we are in chapters eight through ten of Matthew, which we said before is kind of a a focus, especially on the people of the kingdom, Uh, Jesus comes across a number of different people from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic statuses, uh, different understandings of of life and the world and all of that. Jesus comes across a lot of different people in these chapters, and we think that in each of these interactions that he has with different people, we learn a lot about who Jesus is, what his priorities are, and then his heart for people in general. So that's kind of what we're doing during this section of Matthew chapters 8 through 10. Now, in today's, to- in today's story specifically, uh, Jesus is going to have some of his first run-ins with people that represent the law. Now, when I say that, I don't mean the law as in the cops. Uh, I mean people who were steeped in the traditions and commandments of the law of Moses. the, The law that you and I find primarily in the first five books Of the Old Testament. At the time that Jesus arrives on the scene, there was a certain understanding from certain people from that part of the Bible about how God related to people and how people related to God. There was a certain understanding of all of those things from the Old Testament, from what is called the law. And today, Jesus interacts with three specific groups of people who saw themselves as experts in the law. The three groups of people we're going to look at specifically are the Pharisees, the scribes, or your Bible might say the teachers of the law, and the disciples of John. We're going to cover them in that order. And in Jesus' interaction with each of these groups of people in Matthew chapter 9, he sort of engages with their understanding currently of how people relate to God, and then he deconstructs a lot of it. And then he completely reorients their understanding of how to relate to God. And my take on it is that through these stories we're going to cover this morning, Jesus might just want to do the same thing for us. He might just want to help some of us deconstruct and reorient how we relate to God and how we understand who God is So let's dig in, see what we can learn together. Now quickly as a heads up, I'm actually going to take our three passages from Matthew 9, 1 through 17. I'm going to do them a little bit out of order this morning. I'm going to cover the story in the middle of the passage and then the story on either side of that one. The reason for that is because I think the middle story that we're gonna cover first contains sort of a a major insight, an interpretive key, if you will, that helps us understand the other two stories a little bit better. So we're gonna do that one first. We're gonna start there in the middle and then use what we learned for the other two. So pick it up with me, chapter nine, starting in verse nine. As Jesus passed on from there, He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, meaning Matthew was a tax collector at the time. And he said to him, follow me. Matthew rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. So in our first story, Jesus calls a guy named Matthew to follow him, to be his disciple. Now, Matthew is in all likelihood the same Matthew who wrote the book that we are currently reading. He went on to write the gospel of Matthew. But back when Jesus called him to be a disciple, Matthew was a tax collector by trade. And that's precisely what prompts some of the controversy and the tension in this particular story. Now for those who are unfamiliar with this profession of tax collectors, they were not a wildly popular bunch among Jewish people during this time in history. They were likely seen as equal parts traitors and con men. So just to kind of wrap your mind around how people would have felt about tax collectors, let's try to give you like a modern hypothetical scenario. Imagine with me, Uh, that a foreign government takes over the United States in a man in the high castle type situation. You with me so far? And and one of your friends hops on the payroll of that foreign government, and their job is to force you to pay 40, 50, 60% of your income to that foreign government in taxes, Your friend gets rich off of doing all of this and having this particular job, and they use the foreign government's military to intimidate you into always paying those taxes, however high they might be. Now my guess is that you are no longer going to be a big fan of that particular friend of yours, right? Okay, that's how people felt about tax collectors at the time, that is in essence what tax collectors did for a living. You've probably got not a lot of people, if you're a tax collector, if you're Matthew at this particular time in history, you don't have a lot of Jewish people dying to grab dinner with you on a regular basis. You've probably got more people than not who, who see you as the worst kind of bad person that there is. A lot of people that probably hate you because of what you do. But in this story... Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, walks up to Matthew and calls Matthew to be his disciple, to follow him. He does. Shortly after, Jesus heads over to Matthew's house for dinner. And to make matters worse, a whole host of other tax collectors show up to the dinner party, as well as a group of people that are referred only to, Uh, or referred to only as sinners. Now, there's some debate as to who these people were exactly. Could have been anybody with an obviously sinful lifestyle, like a prostitute or a thief, all the way down to just common people that did not give strict obedience to Old Testament law. But whoever it is, the Pharisees are not happy at all about Jesus hanging out with these particular people and having dinner with them. So you've got to remember that in this day and age, who you ate with was a big deal, socially speaking. To eat with someone was in essence to associate yourself with that person. And often it was seen as approving of their behavior and their lifestyle. And here's the thing, in part, that is what is happening at this dinner party that Jesus is at. At this dinner, there is an association and approval of someone's actions and someone's lifestyle taking place. But it's not Jesus approving of sinners, it's actually the sinner's approving of Jesus. Several commentators on the book of Matthew actually note that this dinner is not just any dinner, it's actually a reception. It's a banquet sponsored by Matthew. It's Matthew associating himself with Jesus and Jesus' movement and Jesus' way of life. You see, Matthew has undergone a transformation of sorts. He has gone from traitor and con man, tax collector to disciple and follower of Jesus of Nazareth. He invites all of his shady friends to this dinner party with Jesus because he wants them to come and know and follow Jesus as a result of being there. That's what this dinner is all about. And Jesus actually alludes to to this being how all of this works in his answer to the Pharisees' question. So first, he says, sick people are the ones that need a doctor. In other words, when a doctor hangs around sick people, it's not because that doctor approves of sickness, right? That's not how being a doctor works. It's because he wants to do something about the sickness. He wants to help with it. Well, in the same way, Jesus hanging out with sinners is not because he approves of sin. It's because he wants to help do something about the sin. But he also says this, and this is sort of the interpretive key that I mentioned earlier. So I want us to spend a little bit of time camping out on this part of the passage. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not Sacrifice. So he starts with, go and learn what this means. Now, first off, uh, this would have been wildly offensive to the Pharisees that Jesus says it to. Keep in mind, they are experts and very much saw themselves as experts in the Old Testament. Jesus is about to quote from the Old Testament, specifically the prophet Hosea, and he prefaces it with, go and learn what this means. To the Pharisees, So this would be like me walking into a fourth year philosophy class at UT and saying, hey, you guys should really read some Aristotle. Have y'all ever heard of him? You might learn something if you read some Aristotle. I mean, this is an incredibly inflammatory statement for Jesus to make. Jesus is implying here that the Pharisees might be unfamiliar with or at least confused by the very thing they have devoted their life to studying in detail. So... Lest we find ourselves in the same place as the Pharisees in this passage, not knowing what this verse means, let's actually look at that verse from Hosea in full. So we'll put it up on the screen, you don't have to turn there, and sometimes it's hard to find a prophetic book like Hosea in your Bible, so just take a look at this. This is Hosea 6, verse 6, this is the verse that Jesus quotes from. It says, first, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, that's the part that Jesus referenced, Then it goes on to say, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So God desires mercy, not sacrifice. But if you pay attention to what that verse says in its entirety, it just revealed that we're not talking about sacrifice in a general sense. So it's not talking about just like being a sacrificial person. It wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to be against that, right? He, He encourages people to live that way on a regular basis. So he's not talking about sacrifice in general, Rather, he is talking about a specific type of sacrifice. He's talking about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. We know that because the second half of the verse says burnt offering, which was a specific type of sacrifice within that system. So, in order to understand what's going on here, I need to give you like a 30 second crash course on the Old Testament sacrificial system. Are you guys up for such a thing this morning? I know it's a little bit later. It's 11 something o'clock. I think you guys can do it. I know that's all what you were hoping you would become experts in as a result of being here is the Old Testament sacrificial system. But it's important that we understand what's going on there so that we can understand what Jesus was trying to say in this passage. So, Essentially, the thinking behind the Old Testament sacrificial system was this. Sin is a big deal. Sin separates us from God and something has to be done about that. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should be tracking with all of that so far, right? Like that's all, we believe all those same things about the reality of the world. Sin is a big deal, it separates us from God and something has to be done about that. But in these days, the days that Jesus is living in, What had to be done about it was that you had to offer a sacrifice for your sin. Now, one specific type of sacrifice was called a burnt offering. Essentially, it was a way of acknowledging your sin before God and expressing a desire for a renewed relationship with him as a result. You would go to the temple altar, or maybe a priest would on your behalf, and you would offer this sacrifice before God. It was a ritual, but it was a ritual with a distinct purpose. Now, keep in mind, the Pharisees were experts in rituals like these, so they were very, very familiar with the system itself. In fact, they often saw themselves basically as the gatekeepers of this system. They had sort of set themselves up as the authorities on whether or not people were properly offering these types of sacrifices. But here was their problem, and this is so important to get if you're going to understand where the rest of this passage is going this morning. Here was the problem. The Pharisees had emphasized the ritual, but they had forgotten the purpose of the ritual. Somewhere along the line to at least a lot of the Pharisees in Jesus' day, the ritual itself had become more important to them than the reason for the ritual. That was their issue. So the question becomes, what was the reason for the ritual, right? Well, we saw it right there in Hosea 6 in that passage. The purpose, it says, was mercy and an acknowledgement of God. That was the reason for the sacrificial system. In fact, this passage, Hosea 6, actually says that God prefers those things, mercy and an acknowledgement of God, over sacrifices themselves. Apparently, the point of sacrifice was not the sacrifice itself. It was meant as a pointer to, a reminder of what God really wanted. The purpose of sacrificial systems in the Old Testament was to reunite God with people despite their sin. That's what God was trying to accomplish. The entire point of the sacrificial system was reuniting God with sinners by dealing with their sin. Now here's why I say the Pharisees had forgotten that reason. Because here Jesus is in Matthew chapter nine, In the story, offering mercy and relationship with God to sinners, sinners are receiving that mercy, they're responding to it, and all the Pharisees can think about is how it's not supposed to work like that. But listen, that's exactly how it was supposed to work, right? That was precisely the point of the Old Testament sacrificial system, is that God would be reunited with sinners despite their sin. It's just that Jesus is going about it in a new way that doesn't fit in their existing framework. And that's their problem with it. Now, I know we just covered a lot of ground in a very small amount of time, but are you guys tracking with how all of that works, at least in theory? see a lot of head nods and a lot of glazed over eyes. That's fine, we'll just roll with it. So that's how all of that worked. Now what I wanna do next is I wanna look a little more quickly at the other two stories in this particular passage with everything that we just talked about in mind. Because I think a lot of what we see in the scribes and the disciples of John and these other two stories are actually a similar misunderstanding of the Old Testament law to the Pharisees. So, we'll look at the scribes first. Jump up with me to verse one of chapter nine. And getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic, Lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So in this story, a paralyzed man is brought to Jesus on a mat by some of his friends, When Jesus sees this man and the faith of the people who brought the man to him, he tells this man that his sins are forgiven. Now the scribes who are watching all of this play out in front of them, they don't like that Jesus has said this. Because remember, from their perspective, that's not how forgiveness of sin works. From their perspective, for there to be forgiveness of sins, there has to be an offering made, there has to be an acknowledgment of sin. There has to be a burnt offering of some sort. There's a, there's a process and there's a ritual that has to be followed for this to happen. But here comes Jesus just walking around telling people that their sins are forgiven without any of that happening first. So they accuse Jesus of blasphemy, in other words, of claiming to do what only God through the Old Testament sacrificial system can do. Jesus, who knows what they're thinking at the moment, asks, which is easier to do? Is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven to this man, or is it easier for me to say get up and walk? So I'll just ask you guys, which is easier to say? It's a little bit of a tricky question, right? Even some commentators disagree on this, but here's, here's the majority opinion, at least, is that it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, because there's no way to verify whether or not that's true. It might be true, might not be true. So I I could walk around all day long telling people that their sins are forgiven, right? Like I could do it Oprah style and just say, you get forgiveness and you get forgiveness and you get forgiveness. I could do that all day long and there's no way to verify whether I'm lying or not because there's no way to externally verify whether or not a person's sins have been forgiven. But Jesus says, So that you will know that I have the authority to do the unverifiable thing, I'll do the verifiable thing. And he tells the man to get up and walk, and the man does. And plenty of people see this all happen. So now the scribes, the teachers of the law, have a bit of a PR problem on their hands. Because they have been emphasizing to people nonstop the necessity of the sacrificial system in order for forgiveness of sins to happen. And Jesus, in this moment, has seemingly just bypassed the whole sacrificial system and been validated in doing that. Do you see the problem that they're encountering in this moment? He has sidestepped the ritual, in other words, but he has accomplished the reason for the ritual, restoring people to God via forgiveness of their sins. Once again, Jesus cares about the reason for the ritual a little more than he cares about the ritual itself. Okay, let's look at the last story and then we'll talk a little bit about how all of this might apply to us today. So pick it up with me, skip down to verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Okay, this is all a bit uh, coded in how Jesus talks about this. Let's try to walk through some of it in detail. This time, it's the disciples of John, in other words, John the Baptist, who approach Jesus with their own sort of question. Now this is a slightly different group obviously than the Pharisees and the scribes but they were similar to those two groups and that they also took adherence to the law very very seriously. When the Pharisee while the Pharisees were sometimes more focused on the ritual of the sacrificial system John's disciples were a little more focused on sort of individual rituals like fasting. To them, fasting was this really important thing that you participated in, that God regularly commanded from his people, and they don't see the disciples regularly fasting. They don't see the disciples regularly participating in this particular ritual. They probably see or hear about Jesus' disciples going and hanging out with Jesus at tax collectors and sinners' houses and having these great dinner parties, these epic feasts, and they're going, that seems off to us because we thought we were supposed to fast on a regular basis. They want to know why they and the Pharisees fast and Jesus' disciples don't seem like they do. Jesus answers by saying three different things to them that are really just three ways of saying the same thing. He offers two word pictures, one about patching old clothing, one about storing new wine in old wineskins without going into all of the science of all of this, which I'm assuming you guys did not come here to hear me talk about. um, Basically, the point is you can't do either of those two things, it won't work. If you patch an old garment with new material, it'll tear. If you pour new wine into old wineskins, the wineskins will burst. But before he says all of that, he says this, and I think this is probably the most vivid word picture for us. He says, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So weddings back then in Jesus' day, like, like many of them today, were massive celebrations. Jewish weddings actually lasted an entire week. Dad's in the room with daughters who are currently stressed out about saving up for your daughter's wedding. Just imagine that times seven. Like weddings were a big, big deal back then. Huge feasts, huge celebrations, ton of food, ton of wine, ton of partying, ton of dancing. That's what weddings were back then. And so Jesus, using that as an example, says, hey, you, you don't fast at a wedding. That's the exact opposite of what a wedding is for. So just, just imagine one of your best friends in the world is getting married. And imagine they just go all out for the wedding, right? Like they spare no expense, there's good food, there's good drink, everybody's dancing, everybody's having a good time, everybody's celebrating. And then you go talk to your friend at the reception and they're just all smiles, right? Best day of their life, they're having a great time and they ask you, they say, hey, are you having a good time at the wedding? Are you enjoying yourself? And then imagine that you answer them by saying, well, actually, I felt like today was a good day for me to start keto. I've just been thinking about it for a while, and I just felt like your wedding day was really a good launch point for that diet for me. (laughs) Can you imagine how confused your friend would be? Maybe even how offended they would be You're sitting there going, yeah, I can't partake in any of the food or the drink, and I'm a little bit too tired to dance because keto wipes you out, you know. I think your friend would be like, hey, keto is great, and good job taking care of yourself and all of that, but don't you think you could have started it tomorrow? (laughs) Is it really that big of a deal that you start it today? Today is for celebrating. Like, we've been looking forward to this day. It's a complete misunderstanding of your surroundings, your environment, and the mood of the moment. I think Jesus is actually saying something similar to John's disciples in our story. He says essentially, hey, uh, guys, we're in wedding mode right now, and y'all are trying to have a funeral. He says, I'm on the scene People are being brought back from the dead. People are being healed. People are coming to discover who God is. People are responding in faith. We're celebrating. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's time to celebrate, and that's why my disciples aren't fasting right now. Fasting is great. It's an awesome way to turn your attention and your focus towards God, but Jesus is saying to John's disciples, God is right here in front of you, and you're still trying to find him in fasting. You've got the ritual down, but you're missing the reason for the ritual in the first place. You see, again, the Pharisees and John's disciples were trying to fit Jesus into their existing ritual practices. But Jesus makes it clear in the passage that he's the new wine. He's the new patch on the garment. He's doing a new thing in a new way. And Coincidentally, somewhat ironically, that new thing that Jesus is doing is actually just a different expression of what God has been up to all along, which is showing mercy to sinners. It's just that he is going about it in a new way. Jesus is trying to help them look past the ritual so that they can see the incredible thing that God is doing right there in their midst. They want ritual Jesus wants the purpose for ritual. So, with all of that unpacked, where did these passages and these stories need to intersect our lives today? Because my guess, this is just a guess, just a hunch, but probably a lot of you in the room did not walk in here fixated on the Old Testament sacrificial system and just burdened by how you can't see past it. If that is a problem for you, hopefully so far it's been really helpful uh, and eye-opening, but my guess is that is not most of our particular struggles. So how might this impact you and I, 21st century Americans trying to follow Jesus? Well, again, I want you to remember the problem with the Pharisees from the first story that we looked at, and it's really the problem that runs straight through this entire passage. There were people that were so fixated on ritual that they had forgotten the reasons for the ritual in the first place. Now, I think it's worth noting that our faith as followers of Jesus today is different than theirs. But in many ways, our faith today is still a ritualistic faith. We have rituals as followers of Jesus that we participate in. Now, maybe we don't call them rituals because that sounds like witchcraft to us. But we still participate in rituals, right? A ritual is just something that you do, usually on a recurring basis, to help achieve a certain purpose as a result. So as followers of Jesus, we have plenty of rituals that we participate in. This, what we're doing right now, Sundays for us, this is a ritual. The things that we do during the gathering are rituals. Singing songs to Jesus, learning from the scriptures, the awkward two two minutes where I force you to talk to people you don't wanna talk to. All of that is a ritual, right? These are things that we do on a repeated basis for a certain purpose. Showing up to life group, if you're a part of a life group, that is a ritual. Many of your life groups have rhythms where you go and hang out somewhere in the city, ideally invite along other people that don't follow Jesus yet. That is a ritual. Even the rituals we do on an individual basis, so reading the scriptures each day, prayer each day, a day of rest once a week, all of those are rituals. Confession and repentance is a ritual. We could go on, right? But all of these things are actually rituals that we are called to participate in today as God's people. And all of these rituals have purpose behind them, right? So so each of them have unique purposes of their own, but all of them have the common purpose of helping us become more like Jesus, helping us discover who God is and walk in intimacy with him through the Spirit. But I think the temptation for us, just like the temptation from these three groups of people in the passage, is to continue the ritual, but to altogether forget the reason for it. The temptation, for instance, is to attend Sunday gatherings because it's a tradition or or because we grew up doing it or because we feel like we're supposed to be there. The temptation is to sing songs to Jesus because that's what we do. The temptation is to listen to the teaching because that's what Christians do is listen to sermons, (laughs) sometimes way too many of them, right? The temptation is to show up to life group each week because we feel obligated to show up. The temptation is to read the Bible in the morning because that's what we were told to do one time or because we feel guilty if we don't. But I want you to see that none of those motivations that I just listed embody the heart, the, the reason, the purpose for those rituals, The purpose of ritual for us today is a knowledge of God and a relationship with God. The purpose is to grow more in a love for and intimacy with him. The goal is to see our sin as the problem and Jesus as the solution The the goal is to align our heart and our desires more and more with the God who made us in such a way that mercy flows from God to us and then through us towards other people in our world. The reason for those rituals are not the rituals themselves. The reason for those rituals is a vibrant relationship with God. But when we forget that, we forget the reason behind them, we can really quickly start to resemble the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and John's disciples. If we're not careful, we can become experts in ritual and strangers to God. We can become good church people, right? So people that participate in all the right things and go through all the right motions on a weekly or daily basis, but whose hearts are far from walking with God in relationships. And here's the thing I've noticed, when that's the case, when, when our lives are just filled with empty ritual, all it will take is the right hobby, or the right girlfriend, or the right boyfriend, or the right combination of life circumstances to happen, and all of a sudden even those rituals fall by the wayside, because that's all they were, right? They were just empty rituals, they were just things we did because we felt like we were supposed to. I see stuff like this happen a dozen times a year as a pastor. When someone's life is nothing but empty ritual, all it takes is something a little more interesting, a little more attractive to come along, and all of a sudden even the rituals fall off. When our relationship with God goes no deeper than ritual, it is only a matter of time until something else becomes more important. So... The question is, how do we avoid ending up there as followers of Jesus? Well, first, let me just mention one thing we don't do. We don't abandon those rituals altogether. Sometimes that's a response that I've seen people have. People will say things like, well, I've been reading my Bible. I don't see the purpose in it. My heart's not in it, so I might as well stop reading it. Or, you know, I've been going to church, but I don't really think I'm getting much out of it, don't really understand why I'm going, my heart's not in it, so I'm just going to stop. So often, I think people, when they lose the heart behind ritual, is to abandon those rituals altogether, but can I just try and show you why why that's not really a solution? Let's just change the details a little bit. Something else that you and I do regularly in our life, or at least should do, is change the oil in our car. Right? Now, whether you do or not, it is something that we should all do if we have a car. I just want to be clear on that. That's my dad moment to all of you guys. You should be changing the oil in your car. That's an important thing for us to do. It is, in a way, a ritual with a purpose behind it. But let's say that one day you realize right before you take your car to the shop for an oil change, you go, you know what? I don't see the reason in this. My heart's not in this. I don't see the purpose in getting the oil changed in my car. I have never tangibly benefited from getting the oil changed in my car. So you know what? I think it's just gonna be better if I don't do it anymore. I don't wanna do something if my heart's not in it. Do you see how that's not really a solution to the problem? You have correctly recognized a problem and then you've created a bigger problem to try and solve it. Okay, in a similar way, realizing that you have lost the heart behind ritual in your life and responding by stopping the ritual altogether is not a solution. It's the creation of a bigger problem. I've heard one pastor put it this way. He says, nobody gravitates towards holiness. If you just take out all the habits and spiritual rhythms in your life, you are not going to wake up in 30 years and be more like Jesus as a result. This is so important for you to realize. We try to say stuff like this often around here. You need to understand that grace is free, but discipleship takes work. Grace is free, discipleship takes work. Discipleship takes intentionality. It takes rhythms. It takes repetitive action. It takes ritual. So instead of mixing ritual all together in our lives, what if we continued in helpful rituals and ask God, through the Holy Spirit, to breathe purpose and life back into those rituals? What if on our drive here each Sunday morning, we just asked Jesus to to speak and to move through our time here, and then just watched and listened for him to do exactly that in our time together? What if we came expectant for God to do something? What if before we began singing each Sunday, we just took a second... We ask God through the Holy Spirit to use that singing to set our minds and our hearts on who he is and what he wants from our lives. What if before we showed up to life group each week, we just took a moment or two in the car, show up a couple minutes early, sit in the car and and just ask the Holy Spirit what he might have us say or do or even just hear and pray for as a result of being there. What if we opened the Bible each day and we read it expecting not just to learn something or see something interesting, but expecting our time in the scriptures to help us encounter God himself and be transformed by him during that time. That's an altogether different posture, I think. And we could go on with examples, but I think we would all be so much better if, if, if we just looked for ways to remember the reason for ritual and then participate in those rituals differently as a result. Now, lastly, I want to address just one more thing. Because as we talk through all of this, if you're thinking critically about it, you might be hearing me say all of this about ritual and, and be thinking, but, but wait a second. Doesn't Jesus kind of bail on ritual in the passage? Like, doesn't he kind of sidestep it all together? And the answer is, is not really. That's not really what he's doing. It appeared that way to the people that he was interacting with at the time. That's not actually what Jesus was doing at all. And I want you to take a look with me to see how this works from Hebrews chapter 10. We'll look at verses one and four First, put this up on the screen. So it starts off saying the law, the law that included the rituals, sacrificial system, all of that stuff. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. This is what we've been saying all morning so far not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, all of that, can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. It is impossible, notice that word there, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the Old Testament law, the law that included sacrificial system, fasting, that whole framework for how to relate to God that was never meant to be an end in itself. It never actually had the ability to take away sins. That's why the priest had to continually offer more and more sacrifices at the altar time and time again, year in and year out. It was never complete. It was never effective in and of itself. So what is complete? What is effective? What does have the ability to do all of that? We get that down in verses 12 through 14. Take a look with me at that. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, in other words, on the cross, when he did that, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Here's the idea. The only sacrifice that was effective once and for all in and of itself was the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Through offering up himself, his very body on the cross, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the entire sacrificial system, all of the Old Testament ritual that there was, that was actually all meant to point us toward Jesus. It foreshadowed the day that he would offer up his own body as a sacrifice to perfect all of those who are being sanctified. So for those of us that follow Jesus today, Even though we may participate in our own modern versions of rituals, we don't participate in any of those rituals in order to be accepted by God. That's not the purpose. That's already been settled at the cross. Jesus saw to it that we were accepted by God on the cross. That's already been settled. We participate in rituals today to become more like Jesus. For followers of Jesus, our altar is now a cross, right? The altar is now a cross. We approach the cross of Jesus remembering the perfect and complete work that he has done in bringing us near, and then we respond by implementing any rituals that we need to implement to help us live into who God has already made us through Jesus. We learn to live into the identity that is already ours. That is the reason for ritual. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for um, yeah, even the, the Old Testament sacrificial system, everything that you had set up to help your people understand both who you are and how big of a problem their sin is, but God, also that through all of that, you made a way for our sin to be dealt with. And God, at the same time, we we thank you that um, we do not live under that system anymore. God, that now we live through the perfect system that you have made possible through the death of your son on the cross that we now get to live in relationship with you through him and through what he did. So God, we we thank you as well for the, the rituals that we participate in today. The things that we do on a regular basis that help us become more like you. But God, we, we thank you that none of our relationship with you is based on how well we perform, religiously speaking. God, we thank you that our relationship with you has been determined, has been settled once at all, once for all, by the blood of Jesus. And now we get to live out of that freedom. So God, if there are are rituals in our lives that um, have lost their purpose, have lost their meaning, or we've lost sight of the reason that they're there, God, our prayer is that that this morning you would would fill our ritual with you. That you would help us not to just go through the religious motions because that's what we feel like we're supposed to do, but because that's what we get to do. Because you have granted us a relationship with you by your grace, your mercy, that we now get to know who you are because of Jesus. And then in response to that, we just look for ways to become more and more like him. So God, would you help us? Would you fill our ritual with you? Would you give us grace and show us patience in that process? But God, over time, would you help form us more and more into who you made us to be and the new identity that you've given us. Would you help us live out of that reality instead of the many other lies that we hear on a regular basis about who we are or what we're worth. God, we thank you that you've given us infinite worth through the cross. We are of infinite value to you. And God, that you have given us the ability to live life in your kingdom for your glory for our good. We ask all this in your name.